Blog Talk Radio. Problems on occasion, and uh, we have one today that I think is particularly significant. Um, and it's significant because it's so complicated. It's complicated. It has to do with uh, health care, which is always crucial. It's just a really big uh, problem in a lot of areas. Some areas, not as many as others. I have with me today a guest named Connie Chung. Connie, uh, Connie Chung. <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> Janet. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking no new media here, <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, I I have with me Janet Chung. My apologies, an attorney in the Seattle area, and she is an expert and has been working on cases in our area or a particular case in the Seattle area uh, that is pertinent to our conversation today. And um, I'll I'll start out by saying welcome, Janet. Thank you for joining us, and I'm. Sorry, I called you Connie Chung. It's <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have to tell you, I was doing a, a women in journalism thing yesterday, all day yesterday, so please forgive me. <laughs> my, my, my brain was elsewhere. Um, and um, Janet, you uh, are an attorney. You work in the field of healthcare, and um, uh, well, I'm going to let you say what it is that you do particularly. <laughs> sure, uh, a bit of a, um, I was going to say a jack of all trades, a jill of all trades with regard to women's rights issues in the law. Um, and so some of my particular focus areas um, include reproductive health um, access as well as anti-discrimination in um, the realms including employment and um, the public sphere. And so th- both of those issues really uh, come together um, for the issue that we're talking about today, which is um, religious rights and health care and how those intersect. Right, and I think that you've summed up very nicely. I, I don't know whether I didn't have my coffee this morning or what, but I, for some reason I'm kind of muzzy today. But um, we are talking about um, kind of a two-sided coin. One is, and, and we were talking about this off air, um, I really am an advocate. I mean, if you own a business, I think you should be, and, and you have particular religious tenets, I think that, you know, people should should respect those tenets, and you can say, this is how I run this business. Um, and if you, you know, as a customer, don't particularly want to support that, or they feel they don't want to support you, fine, you know, go on to somebody else and give them your money. That's my gut feeling. However, when we're talking about health care, it's a whole different ball game. It's not like, okay, I don't like this hospital, so I'll go to the one down the block. Uh, in many areas, there is one hospital for hundreds of miles. And the problem becomes, what if that healthcare facility is owned by a religious group that doesn't believe in providing certain kinds of commonly accepted health care? Then what happens to you as a patient? It's not like you can walk down the block and get it. So it becomes a muddier issue, in my mind anyway, um, of, well, gosh, how do we deal with these problems? What made me think of this particular topic for a show, well, obviously it's in the news a lot, but there was one situation in San Francisco earlier this year. A woman was scheduled to have a cesarean. She was due to give birth. She scheduled a cesarean uh, for a couple months down the road, or a month down the road, and she said, you know, I want to have a tubal ligation during the cesarean. This is commonly done, you know, as tubal ligation is a procedure that is often done in, you know, coordination with um, childbirth. It's done in coordination with another surgery. I mean, it's always better to do these things, you know, all at once rather than keep doing procedure after procedure after procedure. So if you're already in there, so to speak, it makes more sense to just go ahead and do the tubal ligation. Easy squeezy. The problem is the hospital where she was scheduled to have care was a religious facility that did not believe in any form of um, um, birth control, I guess. Uh, They didn't believe in abortion, and so they operated their business, their hospital, that way. And so she was told, great for the cesarean, no luck for the tubal ligation. 
So she contacted the ACLU, and the ACLU has been uh, working with that. And I actually contacted them uh, in San Francisco, the ACLU, and they're the ones that put me through to Janet. And they said, this lady knows a lot about this. So tell me if I did not summarize this correctly. Would you please, Janet? Yes, um, sure. So just to put this, I mean, you've raised a lot of issues, and um, I think what's exciting for me is that we are now talking about it, not just you and I, but um, in general we are seeing more information getting out to patients. Um, These issues are really something that my group, Legal Voice, has been working on for quite some time. And um, so just to kind of give some historical perspective, you know, a couple, gosh, a dozen, more than a dozen years ago, Um, In our area, in Seattle, um, there was an acquisition um, of one one facility in downtown Seattle, what we call the Cherry Hill Campus um, of Providence, and uh, basically acquired by Swedish. And so um, that was just one small transaction, and little did we know (laughs) a dozen years ago, the tip of the iceberg, and that raised some concerns because we... Um, we knew that there were certain restrictions that we can talk about in more depth, but these they're called the ethical and religious directives. Um, I, might, I might refer to them as the ERDs. Um, and these are basically uh, policies that are um, set out by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, enforced by local bishops, okay? They are religious um, in nature, so, and that is the, uh, where they come from. Um, yet these religious-based directives are imposed on um, any facility that is Catholic-sponsored or affiliated. So when you're looking at just this one example of this one facility um, in Seattle um, that piqued our interest and involvement so many years ago, um, you know, the concern was, well, um, how are physicians who are going through a family practice uh, residency going to get training for um you know, to be able to provide the full range of reproductive health care, including abortions. What is that going to look like? And so they, you know, they came to an agreement in that particular situation to make sure that uh, that training was happening, those services were offered, um, you know, done deal. <laughs> then come, you know, a few years later, um, a lot of this, uh, again, the context is after the Affordable Health Care, um, Affordable Care Act being passed nationally, we see, um, the growth of huge hospital systems, you know, a lot of incentives um, from a purely business and economic um, perspective for those mergers and affiliations to be happening, you know, it's, uh, economies of scale, efficiencies, um, ability to negotiate reimbursement rates. Um, we see that acceleration, and that is where really this uh, has created cause for concern that I think a lot of consumers still um, have a lot um, of learning to do and, you know, the media has more investigating to do and we as advocates have more work to do to make sure that people know what it means. You know, it's not just um, your friendly neighborhood hospital. It may well be still friendly hospital, but Catholic run uh, that has implications for well, reproductive health care. We talked about this when we were preparing for the show the other day. Um, a lot of people don't understand that, but hospital mergers, healthcare mergers, healthcare systems mergers are rampant. I think there are probably maybe three, maybe four corporations that own not only just about every hospital in this country, but also the doctor's offices. It's one thing to say, okay, the hospital mm-hmm. down the road is owned by this big, huge corporation. But because of consolidation in healthcare, because of the, the changes that have occurred in the last couple of years especially, um, we're seeing fewer and fewer individually owned medical care businesses. It used to be you could go down the road and your doctor and maybe two or three of his friends or her friends would have their own practice. Well, you're not seeing that very much anymore because economically it's not as viable. So what you're seeing is you're seeing these businesses that are owning not only the hospitals but also the doctor's offices and the uh, uh, X-ray and and uh, um, you know all the ancillary care facilities that you go to. They're owned by huge corporations, and we were joking, but I'm not sure it's so far off uh, that probably there are three entities in the entire world that own all the healthcare. You know. <laughs> Um, and, well, and, I can 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I can give you some some numbers looking at, and this is um, one slice of it. Again, you're mentioning these healthcare systems, which is actually absolutely the case. But um, just looking at hospitals with um, acute care hospitals, um, there the statistics show that in uh, 2011 um, that let's see, it was uh, that. First of all, that the number of Catholic-sponsored and affiliated acute care hospitals had increased um, over the past decade by 16%, so that 10% of all, this is national, all acute care hospitals were Catholic-sponsored or affiliated, much higher in some states, including Washington, where 28%, and these are 2011 numbers. It's grown since then. Uh, So we're talking one, one in nine beds across the country is going to be Catholics affiliated. It's a really large percentage, well, and yeah, yeah, and it's fine if you're in Seattle. I mean, it's one thing because you say, okay, fine, I don't want to go to that that one. I'll go to university. But what happens if you're in the middle of you know East Armpit, Texas, and there's one facility every four or five hundred <laughs> miles? I've been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know you don't right. have any choice. So here comes my, you know, good little Midwest uh, upbringing, which says, okay, you own your business, you should be able to do it the way you want, versus the reality, which is, wait a minute, you're the only facility in this area that's doing this, and now you're saying you're not going to do it. So what happens to the people who need or want this service? That's right. And there have been efforts, you know, with um, implementation of healthcare. um yeah, especially at the state levels, we're seeing in Washington, for example, a lot of discussion around creating networks um, among providers, insurers, to make sure that no matter where you live, uh, you're you know you, within X number of miles, you will have access to at least certain services and be able to get an appointment, you know, within a reasonable amount of time. Because those are the things that that matter, obviously, to to patients is um, access. Uh, geographically and timeliness. And so the question is, you know, what do we put on that list that we consider to be basic health care? And I will tell you from my vantage point that what really troubles me is the siloization, this is not new, women's health care. You know, why is that considered not health care? To me, it is just health care. Um, but we see uh, services that really pertain to um, mostly women, um, being sliced and diced and cut away and exemptions, uh, particularly based on religion. Um, that's really okay, troubling. Okay, I have a question for um, you, which mm-hmm. for some reason, duh, just occurred to me. But, okay, these hospitals that are saying no to tubal ligations, no, well, you know, I mean, I think most of us are not surprised that there are facilities that would say, no, we don't do abortion. But I'm mm-hmm. wondering if a lot of people are aware that along with that, no, we don't do uh, abortion, is no, we don't do tubal ligation. No, we don't do, um, um, you know, DNCs uh, in certain situations. No, we don't do certain things that most of us don't really consider, um, you know, any kind of abortion kind of thing. That's right. Um, no, we won't give this particular medication. We won't give the day after medication. Um, you know, I mean, there are so many of these things that I think a lot of us take for granted uh, as just being out there. I mean, I think most people are ready to argue one way or the other with abortion, blah, blah, blah. But no, this is larger. And then you're mentioning the gender aspect of this. Well, okay, women are the only ones who get pregnant, so okay, you know, that's kind of a gendered conversation right there. However... Do these hospitals that are putting restrictions, say, on tubal ligation also restrict vasectomies? They do. They do. So let me tell you a little bit about the directives that I mentioned um, and some of the things that are specifically in here. And, again, it's, uh, when I started looking into this and learning about this issue, I was really amazed at the specificity of what are, again, called ethical and religious mm-hmm. directives. Um, but here's what they say. Um, uh, Catholic health institutions may not promote or condone contraceptive practices. Um, abortion um, bef- uh, before viabil- termination of a pregnancy before viability is never permitted. Uh, direct sterilization of either men or women, not permitted. Um, 
also IVF treatment. Now I'm not quoting, but uh, just to summarize, it's a range of issues um, that affects both men and women, and we're not even talking about end-of-life decision-making, which also is restricted by, um, by, uh, by these ethical and religious um, directives. And so when we're talking about Catholic healthcare services, um, there are those rules that a lot of patients have no idea. And just to elaborate a bit on the abortion piece, because you're right, I think people know generally that um, there is a lot of religious um, opposition to that concept. Um, but what we're talking about medically um, is often some kind of problem during a pregnancy that really endangers the life of the woman as well. Um, and there's a standard medical way of dealing with these issues. You know, if you have a premature rupture of membranes, for example, or an ectopic pregnancy where the, um, the uh, embryo implants outside of the uterus, these are non-viable fetuses, and when they're not treated, they are very dangerous. Um, and so what these facilities call um, a, quote, abortion um, is really part of standard medical care um, and those kinds of care being denied at these facilities. So, okay, so, you know, you you brought up the whole conversation of, you know, the, the gendered stuff, um, that, that these directives are primarily directed to women. Um, but, on the other hand, you did say they refuse to do serialization of either men or women. Um, so some of this, I mean, men men can't undergo in vitro fertilization. Men can't undergo an abortion. Men can't, you know. So I mean, I'm. Are there other ways in which you feel that the women, the rules are are more restrictive for women besides just the obvious reproductive stuff? I think that's a, the primary way. And um, the other thing is that um, many of uh, often the sterilization, you know, vasectomies for men aren't um, hospital services, so they're. Um, ah. less likely that's less likely where they're going to be going for treatment um, but I think that we you know you expressed this um, belief that I think a lot of people uh, share that we we do have an understanding in our country and culture of um, some basic basic health care needs that need to be met including emergency care um, and I'll tell you one example that um, happened in Arizona um, that really I think highlights how this these policies play out. There was um, a hospital that a local hospital um, that had affiliated um, short-term affiliation with a Catholic um, entity, a woman who was pregnant with twins had um, miscarried one at home, got to the hospital where she was advised that you know, her, her other twin, unfortunately was also not going to survive. So they were faced with a situation where you know, they could help her miscarry, um, which would have been, what was medically recommended. Instead, the decision went up, you know, the hospital administrative chain, and again, because of these ethical and religious directives, that was deemed to be a, um, a an acceptable termination of a viable, quote, viable fetus, even though it wasn't really. She was put in an ambulance and had to be sent 80 miles away um, for that termination. You know, so we're seeing some really sad um, situations and dangerous ones, too. You know, think of what can happen in that time to travel 80 miles away. Not so, to mention the cost well, And again, I want to emphasize that, you know, this isn't just hospitals. Um, okay. You know, it could be, you know, you're saying, well, you know, some of these procedures can be done in doctor's offices, blah, blah, blah. But fewer and fewer doctors own their own practices. More and more physicians are employees of a corporation. And if, as employees, they are told you do not do X, Y, and Z, then, you know, you're in the same boat as you are with the hospitals. I want to throw right. out, before you address that, I want to throw out our phone number. If you would like to join this conversation, and I hope you do, I, I think it's a, you know, it's so often we have conversations like this, and it, it's really kind of meaningless until you happen to be in need. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's, whoa, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. So... Um, I, I, I just think that, I mean, I'm of an age where, you know, I'm not going to have to worry about an abortion ever again. I'm not going to have to worry about a tubal ligation. However, this is a huge issue when it comes to health care, um, and I think it's important for all of us to be aware of what's happening. Please call us 646-378-0430. 
646-378-0430. I do have the chat room open, and I see a couple people in the chat room. Feel free to make a comment or post a question there, and I'll share it with Janet as well. Okay, Janet, so what about... So you were... You know, <laughs> You were talking about the systems, and I think that's a really important point that, um, you know, I mentioned the hospital numbers. That's what we have the best numbers on. But, um, you know, we, we know that, um, you know, these systems own um, increasingly clinics, you know, urgent care clinics. There, we uh, recently have been tracking an affiliation with Providence and Walgreens um, to provide services um, right there in the pharmacy um, and other you know, non-Catholic uh, entities are doing the same thing. So a lot of this, again, is just development in the healthcare industry, but with really big implications. And I'll give you one example that really surprised us to find out um, was a situation in, um, uh, I'm not recalling the exact location, I think it was in the, um, you know, certainly Western Washington, where there was a physician's um, uh, group that had rented office Space from um, a Catholic system that was the landlord, and a provision of the lease. <laughs> so they're not, you know, even providing services directly. It's not like an admitting privileges services contract. A lease included an agreement for that group to abide by the ERDs. Um, you know, and of course, physicians um, and staff also have similar provisions in their contracts. And if you think about, you know, where do we really have the ability to disagree with that? They, they don't. In reality, when we've talked to employees who work in these systems that are being acquired um, or merging with um, Catholic entities, they, they need their jobs. They've got to keep them. And so you're going to sign that. You're not going to say, I'm sorry, I cannot agree to these terms. And right. as a result, that really uh, limits their independent ability to make um, whatever decision that they might otherwise make based on standard medical practice you know I just, I just wanna, you know it's interesting uh, that you mentioned the, the thing about the lease i i have a an a, a friend a, co- a colleague who um ran um it was not health care but it was a social service organization did wonderful work and he leased space from a religious organization didn't happen to be catholic but it was a religious organization and they were happy to you know lease him the space until they found out that he was living with his girlfriend and they terminated his wow. lease. You know, I and and it's kind of like, okay, all right, I guess they have the right to do that. But again, when you come to the issue of health care, we have segued in this country from looking at health care as something that is optional or available to thinking of it as a basic right for people. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you can. there are people who believe that it shouldn't be a basic right, blah, 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 but nevertheless, that's how we're looking at it now. We're looking at it as citizens of this country. We have a right to certain levels of health care. So, okay, uh, maybe he didn't have a right to have an office space in that building. Okay, I can make that argument. Um, but when it comes to health care, it's a whole different animal. Um, that's right. And it, if we... Have and and again, you know, I mean, you're the attorney and and you're the you know kind of the civil rights person, but I mean, I do see a conflict between okay, this is my religion and I should be able to do my life based on my religion. Absolutely, I I don't if I don't agree with your religion, fine, I'll go somewhere else. The problem is when you can't go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's right, and I think what we're looking at um, is. Uh, an escalation of these issues and some really important conversations about that uh, that are there limits on religious liberty and um, you and I talked a little before the show that um, our position certainly is yes when you're talking about um, you know health care I mean not just the topic of health care but laws that are passed that apply to everybody equally and I'm going to throw in a legal a little bit of legal jargon here but you know the, the term is are they um, of general applicability and neutrally applied to everybody. So no single religion is targeted. That's not the point of these laws. We're talking about, I'll give you the example we've been most closely working on, is rules in Washington State that require pharmacies to deliver lawfully prescribed medication. So um, it's hard for me to see why this is objectionable, but we have been litigating for 10 years um, on this precise question. So the rules, again, say 
um, pharmacies do your job, deliver medications if someone comes to you with a prescription, right? Um, so, so again, are we, well, are we talking mm-hmm. health, uh, a reproductive type medication? We're talking all medications. I think it's been okay. known right. um, as the, quote, Plan B case. And, of course, the laws on that have changed as well. But um, we're, we're talking about uh, all kinds of medications. And, again, that basic right of an individual provider to say, you know, this is um, – this goes against my beliefs, and more often, uh, you know, it is um, some opposition to contraception or um, the the wrong assumption that um, emergency contraception is an abortive fashion, which it is not, uh, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, that's fine. They can believe that. But the question is, does the pharmacy still have to provide? And those rules struck that balance. Um, so right now where we are in court is, uh, the Ninth Circuit, which is the appellate court covering Washington and other states, has um, ruled with us and said, yes, those rules are valid. They're not targeting anyone. We need those kinds of rules. There's a, comp- you know, a, a good reason for them to protect health care. Um, and the plaintiffs are a pharmacy and two pharmacists who um, think they should be able to be exempt from those laws, and they've taken it to the Supreme Court. So we're expecting them to decide in um, a couple of weeks whether they're going to take that case. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, again, it's exciting to be there after all these years of litigating. It's kind of frightening, too, to think that, um, you know, we have to ask this question of basic health care and, you know, an individual's um, right themselves not to provide it. And when you're talking systems, you know, we would come down firmly on the side of, well, you know, okay, maybe you don't have to be the one doing the abortion or, you know, whatever, but the system does. And so when you get into rural areas where, you, like you mentioned, you've got one system um, or one provider, um, you know, who, what's the obligation there? And, again, we think it shouldn't matter where you live. Um, you should have access to a certain range of basic health care services. And for women... Yeah. Um, guess what? Reproductive health care is the main reason that most women ever go see a doctor or a provider. Well, yeah. I mean, it's so much a part of our lives. You know, I mean, it, it, every it, it, for a woman, especially during those childbearing years, so much of your life is involved in repro- reproductive issues, you know, whether you That's right. are actually reproducing or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and I think most women agree with that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, men break their thumb with a hammer or whatever, and they go to the doctor. Women go to the doctor for all sorts of things, and, it, and, and uh, you know, they always, uh, the numbers show that women actually access health care more um, frequently than men do, and I think that most of the time it's because of the reproductive issues in one way or another, uh, or our reproductive uh, capacities or our reproductive systems within our bodies, you know, whatever. Um, so, okay, so you mentioned uh, a term that I was not familiar with, which is the ERDs, the, the Reproductive Health Directives, um, that these businesses um, go under. Um, and we talked about that they are that they come into play when not only with the hospitals but with the um, uh, doctors' offices and the, the the personnel and everything and the pharmacies and even as far as to leases. But what can we do about these? I, well, before we get to that, it, the government, our government, comes up with all sorts of ways to insert itself into health care delivery. It just does, and especially in the last couple of years when we've come out with the Affordable Care Act. Boom. It's hard for me to understand. I mean, the example that we were talking about before we went on the air is if you're a community hospital and you're, you know, within 20 miles of a large university hospital, for example, the large university hospital can have some sort of big expensive MRI machine, blah, blah, blah. Well, your little community hospital decides that you want one. You don't want your people in your community to have to drive 25 miles to the university hospital for their MRIs. You have to apply to a government entity before you can just go buy that. You have to get approval from that government entity Mm -hmm. before you can just go buy that as a hospital. We're already seeing, um, I mean, government, our government, says, okay, these issues have to do with more than just your particular business, and so we have something to say about that. So we've already established that precedent, it seems to me, that our government ha- should have something to say about the distribution of health care 
in your community. Why, then, is it such a huge issue involving lawsuits and everything else when we say, okay, then the government should come in and say, okay, there aren't, there's not a hospital within uh, 100 miles that will do a tubal ligation, so this hospital needs to. Why is that such a big issue? Well, I, I wish there were an easy answer. <laughs> and I guess for, just for the record, um, it's the ethical and religious directives that are, again, um, uh, promulgated, approved by the Conference of Catholic Bishops, so ERDs. And so um, you, know, you had a lot of uh, things wrapped up in your question, so let me see if I can parse see them why. Basically, <laughs> see if you can sort it out and make sense out of it for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying basically why, why can't we have um, rules or uh, you know, government involvement saying you've got to have you know, certain services? And you know, I think that there's a lot of issues going on with access to health care, some of which are um, you know, at a very base level, just what are the basic, what, what do we consider basic health care? How do you get people trained to provide those services and get enough people in all the places? We've got a real, I think, challenge with rural health care um, delivery and the lack of family practice um, physicians. Um, you know, that is one of the least well-paid specialties. Um, you know, if you're a med student, <laughs> wouldn't you rather be a, you know, a heart surgeon and have one specialty, get paid a heck of a lot of money rather than, you know, being in the, what did you call it, East Armpit, Texas, <laughs> um, <laughs> providing basic care. So that's one issue. So, so um, And there are people working on that piece. Um, as far as what the government can do, I think we are working towards, um, towards a system where we do have access to basic services. So that, again, involves defining that. Um, and defining defining geographic regions um, that we're talking about, um, you know, within a certain region, everyone should have ex- access to X services. A third issue, really, that, that is a big one, is insurance coverage. So obviously, the ACA has um, made a lot of strides towards um, making sure folks have basic coverage for basic needs. Uh, again, though, we see some exclusions, and that's what now twice, well twice on the issues we've been tracking, but multiple times uh, the uh, groups have gone to the Supreme Court and to the courts um, in general challenging that law. Um, The one I'm sure everyone's heard of, Hobby Lobby, of course, um, had to do with contraceptive coverage provisions. And again, this term, we've got another case pending um, with uh, the Supreme Court, again, on contraceptive coverage, this time from religious nonprofits saying, you know, we don't want to include coverage for contraception. We don't even want to be involved to the extent that we fill out a form telling the government that we don't want to participate. And so (laughs) I really think we've reached an illogical extreme. I mean, I thought it was all illogical, but in this case, you know, filling out a form, I mean, essentially I'm boiling it down, but um, their claim is that uh, interferes with their religious beliefs. It's a burden to fill out the form and say, I object. Uh, This is where we have gotten, you know, that kind of opposition to just the coverage piece. So, you know, we're talking about... Well, you know, I just did my taxes and I had to fill out a form and it was a burden, okay? (laughs) (laughs) It is such a burden, okay? (laughs) It's true, we laugh, but, you know, those those are actually examples that have already been litigated a long time ago. You know, Mennonites who did not want to participate in... um, the social security system and, you know, conscientious objectors not wanting to participate in the draft, you know, all of those, you know, we get it. It's legitimate. That is where they're coming from. But the question is, you know, to what extent, you know, we've got laws that apply to everyone else. Why should they not have to also apply? And that's particularly important when we're talking about health care and, you know, impacts on third parties. Well, and I think for Patience. me, you know, with my entrepreneurial spirit, the thing that, that impacts me is, okay, I want to go start a business. Why can I not follow my own beliefs and guidelines mm-hmm. in running that business? Um, and if you don't want to participate in the way I run my business, then go to the next business. But again, what if there is no next business? And That's what right. if, you know, the, the what you're saying – Defy, you know, the 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 tenants that you're you're uh, trying to run your business under uh, defy the norm and the typical um, um, standard for the community. 
Um, so that's, I think, where the, that, you know, who is it? And that's the, that, and therein lies the rub, you know. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, where, when, when you're the only business that's available, uh, and to kind of go full circle to my example at the beginning, okay, if it's a wedding cake, all right. You know, nobody's going to live or die because of a wedding cake if, you, if somebody refuses to bake your cake. When you're talking health care, it's a totally different issue. If you're in a community, you can't get a tubal ligation. You've already got six kids, and son of a gun, you all of a sudden get a seven, eight, nine. You know, that's life-altering. Um, you know, getting your wedding cake is not life-altering, okay? I mean, I don't, you know, no matter how sympathetic you are to a particular <laughs> position, you know, it's not life-altering. It, we are talking something totally different here. Um, right, and, and, so, I, and I think, again, just to talk about the, the systems, I think that is a really important thing to remember is that, you know, we hear a lot from both hospitals and individual providers, you know, that's just not our specialty, and we have the right to not offer that line of service. Um, and I think that there, you know, there certainly is a reason that we've got, you know, great cancer care centers and, you know, acute care heart um, specialists, and that's great, right? And we need those specialists. Um, so we're not saying that heart surgeon needs to learn how to do a tubal ligation. That's not the situation. But we are saying that, um, you know, a, a system has an obligation to provide that. If you're in a healthcare profession, you didn't join that profession to refuse, or we don't think you should be in that profession. Um, just And just to make an analogy that um, maybe makes it seem uh, a little clearer, um, you know, we are not that far from the civil rights era where we're talking about um, people fighting for the right to get a range of services, whether it's sitting at a restaurant counter, you know, drinking from a water fountain, accessing a school, or going to a hospital, and people were being denied based on the color of their skin. Um, we have laws, um, not entirely effective yet, I think, so we've got some work to do, but you know, everyone, I think, recognizes it's not okay to say no because of the color of your skin. Why then is it okay to say no because you don't believe in that kind of health care um, when there's science and uh, it's a medical, medically accepted standard practice? I think if you enter that Well, position, and that, I think, is a, should provide. Uh, is a key. I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people understand that the health care you receive is not one provider's idea of the health care you should receive. That's right. There are standards, there are guidelines, there are entire books uh, written about, okay, this is the standard of care. You know, when, when insurance companies decide whether they're going to pay for something, they base it on the usual and customary. They base it on what is the standard for care, and there are huge numbers of people employed at the government level as well as private level to look at, okay, you have a gallbladder attack. What is it that is the best practice for dealing with that gallbladder attack? Um, Now, you know, you you might go to an individual practitioner who says, well, you know, I don't think you need a surgery. I think we can do it this, this, and this. Um, You know, change your diet, blah, blah, blah. But if somewhere... Somewhere there is written down that if you have a third gallbladder attack, that's the point at which your insurance will pay for you to have a gallbladder surgery. Okay? Um, and I'm just making that up out of whole cloth. But I have no idea how many <laughs> gallbladder attacks you're allowed to have. <laughs> but the point being that someone, some groups of someones, determine what is acceptable care. Um, you as an individual practitioner or provider may decide, I don't believe in that. I believe that the first time you have a gallbladder attack, you should be marched into surgery and we should get that thing out of there. Um, But the fact is there are standards. And if you do that, you may find that your insurance company won't reimburse for that surgery because your practitioner didn't follow the the usual standards for care. So all of these normal standards of care, these acceptable and and negotiated methodologies and treatments are all written down. It's not just somebody saying, well, we think that it's a usual standard in care to have a tubal ligation after you have your fourth kid. You know, it, it, these are all written down. So the idea that, that somehow or other um, we don't have standards, um, it, it, it's, it's a, um, you know, it, that's a false assumption. We already have all sorts of rules and standards and guidelines that are out there already. 
So I don't understand why it's so difficult to say, okay, our rule guideline standard is that if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, we're going to abort that baby for her. That's normal. Right. And if, uh, and if you have well, a thank you. I, I happen to agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. if you have a facility that. that says, oops, we don't believe in that, mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time understanding why we have to have lawsuits to say, but this is how you need to operate. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, just I'll put a pin in the notion that uh, insurers are the right folks to be making those decisions. I think that's another problem, um, you know, but you're absolutely right that there are professional organizations that um, put a lot of time and thought and research into defining medical standards of practice. And with the tubal ligation example, um, for folks who may not be familiar with that whole idea, it is basically, um, you know, we used to call it having your tubes tied, um, but it is, um, you know, a, a severing of that fallopian tube so that uh, to prevent further pregnancy, right? So it is a sterilization procedure of the kind, and that's why it is specifically um, forbidden by these ERDs. But what okay. standard practice is, if that is what a, um, a woman um, decides that she wants to do um, after birth, um, particularly after C-section, you're already opened up, that is the time to do it. To have a second surgery later in a different facility, um, which is what happens if you give birth, like that woman in California and many others like her, um, they will say, we can't do that piece of it. We'll deliver your baby. You know, we'll cut you open and have that C- give you that C-section, but sorry, you've got to go somewhere else for that other procedure. And it's actually more dangerous, far more dangerous yeah. to submit someone to a second surgery. Um, and so these are practices that fly in the face of accepted best practice medicine, medical care. And it would seem to me that if I were a business, because let's face it, these are businesses. These are not, they might be called Our Lady of Charity, but it it is not about charity. These are businesses. These are money-making businesses. And that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. I like to make money, okay? But the (laughs) fact is, they're not some sort of, you know, wonderful little charities out there that should be perceived differently from any other business. They're businesses. This is how they're choosing to operate a business. And it seems to me that, well, I don't, I don't know. It, it just seems to me that it behooves us to understand that healthcare is a business now. It is a business, I think that's and I don't right. care if you're that's going right. someplace for an X-ray, an MRI, an ultrasound. I don't care whether you're going to the hospital. I don't care whether you're going to your friendly neighborhood Dr. Joe, who used to own her own practice but doesn't anymore because she was bought out because she can't because economically she can't have her own little shingle out there anymore. It just doesn't work that way. These are businesses. Healthcare is being operated as a business. Um, so that's right, why and I think it raises. Mm-hmm. Why can't? Why should they not be held to the same standards as all other businesses in that field? That's right. My well, you know, and in, <laughs> I don't disagree with you on that. And I think, um, you know, I, that is not uh, tax law, not my specialty. But what I will say is, you know, they are to the extent they're providing healthcare services, um, certainly obligated to many of the same standards. Um, but the issue you raise about um, government expenditures of taxpayer money does raise concerns because um, to the extent um, some of them are uh, able to be shielded um, by nonprofit exemptions of all kinds, um, that's a concern. And I think you're right about the charity care. The studies show that um, while many of our hospitals do amazing work in providing that care, it um, the Catholic and religiously affiliated groups don't provide any particularly more <laughs> greater amount of it. So um, that's PR um, yeah. and doesn't justify their being treated differently. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, can I give one example of um, a, some litigation in Washington that kind of raises a different angle on this, which is sure, um, about the, the employees, the folks who work at these institutions. Um, again, I've mentioned that they're really – uh, they've got these same provisions written right into their employment agreements, so they are bound um, to follow them, which for some of them really creates 
their own crisis of conscience um, and can subject them to uh, to potential risks as well. We've got a situation in uh, Colorado where a doctor had counseled a patient on the full range of pregnancy options, which includes termination, and got reprimanded for doing that, for, again, just providing information about all services, some of which couldn't be provided at that facility because it was Catholic. Um, we uh, had a case in Washington where this is not a healthcare provider, but a, a security employee for a hospital. Um, this raises a, just a different aspect of the nonprofit protection. Um, he filed a race and disability discrimination case, and because of our state law that um, has, again, explicitly in there an exemption, believe it or not, employees who work for any kind of religious nonprofit um, actually aren't protected against discrimination in our state. So that case, um, the outcome was a little muddled by our court, but basically said, okay, if that employee is not actually engaged in providing some, um, you know, in the proselytizing of religion or, you know, they're not a teacher, they're not a minister, they should be protected. But we had to litigate that to get that clear, you know. So that's just another whole aspect of exemption from standard laws that, um, you know, I think most people in our society think are, you know, basic standards that we should adhere to. And there's an exemption for religious nonprofits. Wow. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I, I think, yeah, there are a lot of of um, funny things like that. Where I, I was talking to the person the other day who um, was hired, uh, subcontracted by a company, and she had a, a, a disability, and um, the second company. So she's like third. You know, she was she was subcontracted by a company to go to a third company or second company okay second company she got to um, did some pretty egregious discrimination against her so she filed a complaint well turns out that she is um, self-employed so therefore they don't have to follow the rules there she she's That's right. the, the, I, you can probably say this better than I am so what so what whatever the rules are for discrimination don't you know if she had been up, uh, employed directly as a full-time employee or a part-time employee, they would have, uh, you know, she would have been covered by these rules, which we all think everybody's covered by. But because she was a subcontractor, a self-employed person, they can discriminate all they want, and they're not breaking the law. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I think, you know, what, uh, again, very much in the headlines these days um, is discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity and um right so any of these places and again the state laws may differ on this but when you don't have explicit protections for lgbt folks in your anti-discrimination law um you know like your friend who um was living um you know not with someone and not married that uh well that's obviously not lgbt but it's um a belief that is a personal belief of the employer and so likewise anyone who just thinks that um, gay people should not, you know, you know be able to um, be married or whatever that doesn't approve of the, quote, lifestyle. Um, we hear that phrase all the time. Um, anyway, that, that that would be a legitimate basis uh, to fire somebody. So all of these things are really troubling, and I don't want to take it too far away from it other than to say that yeah. um, it's, uh, you know, these employees who work there, are impacted in a lot of ways, including their own insurance coverage. And we're talking, I mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the growth of these Catholic-affiliated hospitals. We're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, one of the biggest uh, mergers that was most recently announced is Providence and St. Joe's. Now, they're already both religiously affiliated, but they will, their network, if this deal goes through, is going to cover seven states, 110,000 employees, 50 hospitals, annual revenue uh, of $20 billion. We're talking a significant portion of our economy where folks are living and working under lots of restrictions, religious restrictions. And and the thing I think that's really frightening about this is that many of these restrictions, they're not aware of. They're not even aware of it until the rubber hits the road, so to speak. 
until it becomes an issue, they don't know that it's an issue. And that's kind of frightening. Um, from the standpoint of an employee, you know, that that's unfortunate. From the standpoint of a patient, that could be disastrous. Um, so, okay, um, so what do we do about this? What can we do about this? Yes. Well, we have a couple ideas, and it is, as you can tell, we've been chatting for a long time about some of the issues, so there are a lot of, a lot of different issues, but I think also opportunities. And um, I can tell you some of the things um, that had worked. That Remember that situation I told you about the woman with twins who had to go 80 yeah. miles in an ambulance? Um, that, luckily for that region, was a temporary affiliation, and folks ticketed daily for over a year uh, to make sure that they didn't make that a permanent deal with the Catholic entity and the um, the secular entity remained independent in the end. Um, that was Carondelet, if I'm saying that right, um, with the Catholic entity in Sierra Vista in Arizona. So that was really effective, just, you know, grassroots public action. Um, and we've seen similar groups spring up in Washington State doing great work just raising awareness. And so some of that on an individual level is, you know, inform yourself, you know, what you may not think you need uh, or you may know you don't need a tubal location, but, um, yes. you know, what are some of the other impacts? And I think, you know, asking your provider, um, your healthcare system, your insurer, all of those are great things because we've heard, you know, we work with them and um, we, I think, should share a common goal of transparency and, um, you know, what uh, we hear from them directly sometimes these systems is, you know, it's really complicated to be able to tell you exactly what we will and won't provide. <laughs> and so we, you know, our response is, well, gosh, what about the consumer? How are they supposed to find out? So, you know, we are um, undertaking some efforts to increase transparency there. Um, there was some rulemaking in Washington state um, try, aiming to, to do that. Um, in the end, we've got hospital policies in certain um, types of uh, subjects, reproductive health care, end-of-life care, discrimination that are all posted and available on the Department of Health website. So that's a great first step. We don't think it goes quite far enough to be helpful to patients, but um, encouraging that kind of communication is really important because I think, you know, we are consumers um, as well as patients, and, you know, sometimes we have a choice, not always, depending on where you live, but um, we need to be loud and noisy about what we think is um basic health care. Um, one other area I'll mention is um, some legislative efforts um, that have been geared at trying to protect that patient-provider communication. Um, we, we give a lot of deference, rightly, to our, the healthcare professionals to, you know, they know um, what the science says. Um, they're in the best position to be able to guide the patient and, you know, reach a decision about the best health care. Uh, we don't want any policies um, by a hospital gagging that provider from being able to, to do their work. Um, and that includes retaliating against people who tell their patients about all the options. So, we, you know, we're working on some efforts to increase that, uh, that type of, protect that type of communication. Um, so those are just some of the things I, I could go on. And <laughs> uh, yeah. I know we limited in time. Well, um, you had mentioned briefly legislation. Um, I think, you know, we need to back up a little bit, and that is to make yourself aware, you know, to find out what's going on uh, in, in health care um, and in this whole merger process. Healthcare is undergoing tremendous changes. I think people are aware of that, but I'm not sure they're aware of exactly how much. And I think that basically we were joking about this, but it's probably kind of true that probably in five years, three entities will own everything, you know, from doctors to x-ray machines to hospitals. Um, you know, I mean, there are huge, huge corporations, and there are very few of them that are that are basically owning and buying health care. And if you're, your facilities in your area and the providers in your area are employed by or owned by one of those, entities that happens to have beliefs that it operates under that impact your needs, you know, it, it behooves you to, to find that out. 
<laughs> and find it out beforehand before you need it because once you need it you know it's almost too late to try and do anything um uh so you know i i mean yeah, I just that, really that is that we need to find out about of, this stuff yeah that's right and that is one of the big problems we um when we started looking into this we had the same reaction why are these deals you know once we find out about them and they hit the press they're they're done deals. Why is that? And is there some way to intervene? And um, in Washington, um, we have not been successful at changing that process it's, uh, without too much technicality. It's something called the certificate of need process that um, when there are certain kinds of changes in these systems, they have to you know, let the state know and there's an opportunity for comment. But um, again, these, they, they comply with the public notice requirements, but the big issue is what about um, an affiliation that doesn't rise to the level of an outright sale? Because that's what's happening these days more often than not. It's, they're not, um, they don't trigger those, those laws. Um, and so, again, the, the deal is all practically inked before the public learns yeah. about it and they can't do anything. But in other states, um, there is more robust review by the attorney generals in California. Oregon also has the ability to do that. And, so, you know, we in those states, um, we and our allies certainly have asked for um, a little bit more government involvement just to make sure that patients' needs aren't being completely um, ignored uh, as these deals go through because, you know, they are businesses and they have the right to make their deals, but we want to make sure they aren't going to be to the detriment of the patients. And, of course, we've been talking primarily about reproductive health and we've been talking primarily about women's reproductive health, but you know what? Those are the ones we know about. <laughs> you know, this does impact men. It does impact other areas uh, of health care, just not quite, they're just not quite as loud. So it really behooves us to, to learn about that. One other thing that you mentioned, Janet, was network adequacy rules. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So this is just a concept that um, within uh, a certain region, patients should have access to adequate services, and there should be a, both a provider, um, a provider network and uh, that insurers um, who cover that area um, need to make sure that they have an adequate number of providers um, so that their patients, their, their insured folks, um, again, can not have to travel too far and can actually get an appointment. So in other words, if you've got, you know, a list of pediatricians say that all of them aren't taking new patients, what good does that do to uh, your insured if they have to travel? And so, you know, there's a growing recognition that we need to be smart about setting up systems um, that are equitable um, and that uh, provide, again, this uh, basic level of services and care for folks. Um, So we will continue to advocate for the services that uh, matter most to our populations to be included in this. Yeah. And resource, if you uh, can you tell us a little bit about your organization and contact information if somebody thinks that this is uh, impacting them? Absolutely. Um, so my organization is Legal Voice, and our website is legalvoice.org. We love to have folks check us out, um, you know, join our Facebook group, um, you know, et cetera. We've also, we also do legislative updates during legislative session. And so, again, we work on a range of issues. These are just some of them. Um, we have great partners. Um, the ACLU of Washington has been really a very active leader on this issue in our state, um, as well as nationally. Um, End of Life Washington, um, they have actually a great new uh, mapping tool um, about end-of-life care access. Um, at various hospitals, and that's up on their website. They're formerly Compassion and Choices. Um, and, um, of course, our reproductive health allies, uh, Planned Parenthood and NARAL, um, have been really um, side-by-side with us. One group you may not have heard of that does a lot of great research and advocacy around the country on this is Merger Watch. Um, so check out their website, MergerWatch.org. MergerWatch. Great. Of- thank you so much. And thank you, Janet, for joining us and talking a little bit about this. I, found, I find this sub- subject fascinating. Um, and so, you know, I, I really appreciate it. One of the things I do is close our show with a quote. Today I have a Walter Cronkite quote. America's health care system is neither healthy, caring, nor a system. 
and I think it behooves us to remember that sometimes. Join us next week. We are going to have a woman named Susan Rose who's going to be talking about women's commissions and what so much for joining us. Thank you, Janet, for helping us and uh, understand this whole health care thing.